and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Our scripture reading comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. This is the Common English Version. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Holy word, holy wisdom, thanks be to God. Friends, we're back to school, and some of us back to church, back to normal, almost, except, well, not really, which means that there are so many places to be again. My inbox is full of opportunities to connect, to meet, to learn, and to celebrate. But as my calendar fills up with them, they look the same as they did before the pandemic, like obligations. There are multiple demands on me and my children to suit up and show up. It had me wondering, what is really required of me and my kin? Is there a difference between the quantity of things we show up for and the quality of how we show up? What qualifies us as having lived a good life? Our activities, our actions, our beliefs, or our commitments? In short, is there a difference between a demand, or even a command, and a commandment? Exodus 20 proclaims our freedom from slavery while also warning us of our tendency to find new masters. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, God says. Okay, God, thanks. Right? That's what I want to say. Now what? You shall have no other gods before me. Might God have made it a little easier, like given me a to-do list rather than a not-do list? Because, you know, I can crush a good to-do list. I've got notepads all over the house, dry erase boards for each of my children to write their own to-do lists. I have colorful wall calendars in the kitchen highlighting the family schedule for the next three months. And then there are color-coded calendars that I share over the cloud with each child through their email. These days, every thought I have or express to my kids seems to be some kind of demand to do this now. Do this, or sometimes, often, maybe, don't do that. Without even thinking, I find commands flying out of my mouth. With three kids between the ages of 6 and 15, I am in what seems to be 
the commandment stage of life. I certainly didn't intend to be here when I became a parent, and I don't intend to stay here when I graduate to the grandparent stage. As a teenager and a young adult, I had to ask politely to make my case and never assume I had the right answer. And now that my parents are grandparents, I notice a levity and delight in their communication with those they wish to love and to guide. Even in my most expert parenting moments, if you could call them that, I can't shake the responsibility that I have to offer an order. As someone who has had many of my rules broken over and over again, I have a lot of compassion for God, the holy commander, in today's reading. The Exodus passage describes the first of the Ten Commandments as essentially a reminder to give up our idols. Now God uses several verses to issue this edict and describe the consequences that should we fail. And it it seems really harsh, right? It goes back to like the third and fourth generation. God spills so much ink on this point because God knows how confused and afraid we are when it comes to putting our lives and trust in something outside ourselves. And when we are confused, we project onto God the fears that terrify us and the hopes that console us. We are afraid of being abandoned, and so we construct categories of race, gender, religion, and political party in which we are the pure and the righteous with God on our side, and the other is, frankly, the opposite. Or we are afraid of pain and suffering, and so we imagine a God who will spare us or cure us if we are good enough. Like the Israelites who had minor household gods, we pursue other idols, especially wealth and the promise to live long and not suffer. Many of you are probably aware of your particular insecurities and obsessions. Now there's an expression, if you want to know someone's values, look at their electronic bank statement or their Venmo account, you know, because we don't have checkbooks anymore. But I'd say that this is more true for my schedule. If you want to know what I honor most, check out my Google Calendar. As human beings, we have gotten good at delusion. And we use the name of God as a cover for the idols of our hearts. And this is the great danger of faith, to confuse our fears and our desires with God's heart and God's will. Idolatry is not only something that we do individually. Our political ideologies quickly become idolatrous too. We say, this is God's will, when it's far from clear that that is true. Now in this passage, God identifies God's self as the one who liberates. God is essentially telling us not to be duped by the lesser gods that our fears and desires will create, and not to indenture ourselves with zealous pursuit of our biased pursuit of the one true God. 
The first commandment reminds us that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that is comparable to the creating, liberating power of love. The Hebrew word for God was intended to be so sacred that it could not be spoken. The Israelites knew that assigning a sound or an image for God was already trying to confine and control a limitless, liberating love. Now, today's translation of Psalm 84 says it more gently than a commandment. And, well, that's what I think we like about poetry here at North Decatur. It's of a prettier persuasion than legalese. It says, how radiant the places you dwell. O Lord, my soul yearns for your presence. My whole body longs for your light. Open my eyes. We met uncertainty, positioning always before us. What if we did not meet it with fear and force, but with compassion and longing and trust? Now, when I entered seminary, my grandmother, who's now passed, began a creative writing project. Um, and she's, it was in a class taught by a staff member at Vanderbilt Divinity School. So we used to joke that we were both in seminary. And then for the next 10 years, she wrote me Dear Beth letters about the spiritual journey, not just of herself, but of her mother and her father, and going back to her grandmother who was kicked out of her Methodist church in Santa Fe, Tennessee, it rhymes, around 1901 for bringing her black neighbors to church with her. Now this excommunication that we called it as we passed the story down greatly impacted generations of our family's attitudes around the difference between religion and faith. The larger book project that I worked on during my summer writing leave is weaving together a memoir using these letters to uncover the legacy of faith between generations. Mima, like many of us in churches, had constructed a personal theology based on a few major Bible passages that resonated with her throughout her life. Now these verses were both inspiring and challenging enough to construct her moral compass and a meaning for her life. Her focus was Matthew 25, which actually is the focus of our denomination for the past few years and of this church. Now Matthew 25, of course, is when Jesus says, when you have fed a hungry person or clothed a naked or visited those in prison, you have done so to me. And my grandmother lived her life as a tireless volunteer and fundraiser for mothers and children experiencing poverty and domestic abuse. Her letters are a gift to me as they hand down a legacy of faith, Christian but not always churched, full of doubt and faithfulness, and that goes back generations. This is also the gift of our congregation in a church that is now several generations old. Our storytelling initiative that we are doing as part of our vital congregations planning process reminds me how churches are living archives, of how real people seek to learn and to live their faith in community and in response to the problems of an ever-changing world. If being a part of recording or passing on and you volunteer, 
to interview others or appear yourself. See, one of my passions as your pastor, but also as a writing coach and a reviewer of spiritual memoir, is helping others write the stories of their lives and how they make meaning in order to leave a legacy for those they love. I do this because I know how much this legacy meant to me as a granddaughter. When I witnessed the firsthand the Twin Towers fall on September 11, 2001, as a seminarian and a resident of Lower Manhattan, Mima's letters that described struggle and resilience by family members through the Great Depression and the bombing at Pearl Harbor in World War II gave me the courage to move forward and to serve in the recovery effort at Ground Zero. And when my child's life hung in the balance more times than I would like to remember, Mima's reflections on surviving the death of her own son and the countless losses that my family for generations encountered and recovered from offered me solace and strength to continue through the tunnel of caregiving, not knowing if relief or grief lay at its end. I don't really need to go on. You have examples of similar lessons of faith passed on down in your histories, too. In other words, my grandmother offered what theology textbooks could not, a portrait of faithfulness that didn't depend on an ironclad belief system or an indestructible image of God, whose power and opinions agreed with her own. Throughout her letters, Mima repeats a certain refrain, which I think is based on how a life of service inspired by Jesus Christ quelled her longing to understand herself and her God. She says again and again, to lose yourself is to find yourself. I wonder sometimes if Jesus didn't learn this lesson from his grandmother and if it did not comfort him on the night before his death and assure him on the day of his resurrection. One of the ways that we must be willing to lose ourselves is to give up the images of God that do us and others harm. For instance, and I'm not trying to start any doctrinal arguments here, I'm only disrupting our habitual assumptions as this image does as well. Did you know that the Bible does not use the word omnipotent to describe God? That adjective is a few interpretations removed from its root word El Shaddai, which is a feminine Hebrew noun meaning God of the mountains. This became almighty by commentators, and from there, universally powerful or omnipotent. Now, how many of us have had a crisis of faith, wondering why God did not intervene to stop the tragedy or to heal the one who died too soon? How much did this pit our compassionate heart against our need for intellectual coherence? Were we looking for a universal power coming from on high when the better understanding of this feminine image of God 
would have been great nurturer. Yes, according to theologian Catherine Keller, literally, the breasted one. I've also heard a rabbi interpret this image as all-sufficient. Gregory, the bishop of Nyssa in the 4th century, spoke of God's power tenderly offered to us in feminine terms. The divine power, Bishop Gregory writes, though exalted far above our nature and inaccessible to all approach, like a tender mother who joins in the inarticulate utterances of her babe, gives to our human nature what it is capable of receiving. When we build temples to idols, when we build institutions around our fears and desires and forget the God who liberates in love, it affects not just us, but all the generations who follow us. This, I think, is the real-life version of what the doom and gloom predictions of the final verses in Exodus passage describe. I am Jehovah, your God, who liberated you from slavery. Give your heart and soul to no one but me. Now consider something more scary than eternal damnation. Consider if it were true. To lose your idols was to find God. Could we stand to step into that place of ultimate surrender? Could we hold our hearts so open and our minds so free? Could we even make space in our calendars for mystery and compassion? Maybe we shouldn't hear God's voice as an authoritarian father commanding us to do this, or as a shrill mother carping, don't do that, but as a tender and committed suitor whispering, come closer and take great care. Beloved children of God, the great nurturer is not shaming us or scolding us, but inviting us and the future generations we influence into a closer relationship with the love that forms, redeems, and sustains us. That's the message I hope you take away from today. Now I like to end my sermons invoking the Trinity, and this version comes from St. Augustine. In the name of the lover, the beloved, and the spirit of love itself. Amen.